This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. Before we get started, a little bit about how the sausage gets made. We tape this show on Thursday afternoon, which means about 24 hours lapse between time of taping and when the show airs on KOP on Fridays. And believe me, that is mostly a good thing. I swear entirely too much to be trusted on live radio. But occasionally, in the case of developing stories, that delay means our information might get outdated. And that may very well be the case with our first topic of the day, a story that's still developing, and that is the topic of the governor's declared intention to refuse any refugees' resettlement in our state in 2020, and a Wednesday injunction that put a temporary halt to the Trump policy that Governor Abbott was using as a justification for that refusal. It's a lot to unpack, and so I've asked Chronicle staff writer Michael King in today to lay it all out for us. Michael, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. So before we get into the specifics of what has transpired in the last week, uh, let's start simply with defining what a refugee is in relation to an immigrant, because a lot of people, including our governor, seem to be interchanging them. Right. Refugees are an internationally recognized category of persons fleeing a very well-documented persecution, war. Religious persecution is quite common. And these are United Nations-defined categories, but they're also defined in federal law under the Refugee Act of 1980, which has been enforced for that long and has always operated very, very well until the last few years under Republican administrations. Now, the distinction between them and the folks at the border is simply that they've gone through very thoroughly documented vetting processes, which often take years, not only to document their own persons, but the persecution that they're claiming. And the two things really are, they don't have anything to do with uh, the border, with asylum seekers, with desperate people fleeing economic conditions or war at the border. But what happened is, is that the Trump uh, administration unilaterally decided that they were going to change uh, federal policy, even though the law doesn't permit this, and uh, give up the option to states and even localities in one formulation, whether or not they would accept refugees. The states had until next Tuesday, January 21st, to let the State Department know. And 42... To let them know if they wanted to participate. If they wanted to continue participating as they had for years. And the only state that said no was Texas. Governor Abbott sent a letter to um, the State Department and said, we're overstrapped here by the border, uh, by refugees that we've accepted over the years, even by the homeless. He threw that in for grins, and that the state of Texas would not be participating in 2020. It's actually fiscal year 2020, which for these purposes wouldn't even begin until March. But that being said, it was like a shot across the bow. 42 governors had said, no, fine, we want to continue the program. It's a very popular program, especially among religious groups, many of whom are involved in helping the refugees get settled. 
They're often fleeing because of religious persecution, categories that vary from year to year. And Texas has, as the governor pointed out, over many years accepted about 10% of the refugees that come into the United States as a whole, which he wanted to be patted on the back for, although Texas represents about 10% of the population, so that makes perfectly good sense. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that letter went out about a week ago, and then, as you said, starting out, this Maryland federal judge said, what are we doing here? Why are we doing this? This is a perfectly reasonable program that everybody supports, Republican and Democrat, and uh, that has worked very, very well. It's documented, including by the current uh, administration, that most of these uh, refugees end up becoming very productive residents and American citizens in often uh, times. And so why do this? Well, can I hazard a guess? <laughs> because in the letter that Abbott sent, the, the Governor Abbott sent the State Department, he referenced a broken federal immigration system, which is not what we're talking about here. Uh, and so my question is, is this not just a politicization of the refugee resettlement issue? Are they not trying to basically score points here, both Trump and Abbott, with this? I think that's absolutely true. I mean, a lot of people uh, expressed you know, both outrage and puzzlement over the decision because uh, people believe, most people said it was inhumane in the first place, but also why do it? It's counterproductive. But I think that misses what you suggest is a real intent. It's a political decision. And the, the religious organizations that sued said that this is just a political decision that will spread hatred and divisiveness understanding in their terms that that's a bad thing. But it seems to me that it's very clear. Uh, this represented to me Abbott just saying, you know, I'm on board with Trump. Uh, like most governors of Texas, I'm certain he's ambitious. He's got uh, his eye on the White House, although he's never declared an explicit interest, but it's just normal for Texas governors. But he was saying, I'm with you, uh, both upward towards uh, Trump and downward towards uh, a Republican base now that thinks of this as normal politics. It's a, it's a real shame. Uh, as I pointed out in my column, in some ways, Abbott's decision is, is just symbolic because the Trump uh, administration has steadily lowered the ceil- national ceiling on refugees from was once a high of 200,000 or more in a year 110,000 in the last year of the Obama administration. And now for 2020, he had, he had steadily lowered it since his, um, since his assumption of the White House. It would have been 18,000 in 2020, which means at most Texas would be in a state of 30 million people or so, 28 million or 29 million, I guess it is now would be accepting maybe 2,000 people. In other words, a sizable apartment house or something. Sure. It's fair to say that this was not putting a massive strain on Texas's resources. Right. And in fact, the federal government would underwrite that expense. So it's not even saving any money to claim that it's a, uh, you know, a fiscal decision because of the border uh, policy, which has been Trump's policy for three years. I thought this was an enormous success. What happened? 
I think that's um, a, good, a great point that you make in your column this week of just this sort of, they keep pointing at the federal government as this boogeyman. It's like, well, who do you think is running the federal government right now? Right. Well, to Abbott, it's Congress in quotation marks, uh, which, I mean, they've used Congress as a, you know, a beating post now for years, no matter who's in Congress or who's not. But Trump has, you know, celebrated his border policy and his Muslim ban, for that matter, mm-hmm. for uh, three years. And yet here we are in Texas, supposedly overrun with uh, illegal immigrants uh, who contribute to the economy. They don't detract from it. So, I mean, the refugee policy just seems to me explicitly gratuitous on Abbott's part. He's saying, I mean, I cited the now famous uh, Adam Surrow column called uh, The Cruelty is the Point in which he moves from historical pictures of lynchings through the Kavanaugh hearings and then through things like this, uh, just lists the things uh, which Trump mocks in every one of his rallies and which his his base just rejoices at. We're owning the libs. We're destroying what was once, in the opinion of the, of the judge, uh, you know, beacon of liberty. Well, that's exactly what they say. We don't want to do that anymore. And a sizable portion of the population thinks that's just peachy. I mean, that's exactly where we are now. Has Abbott issued any kind of statement uh, following this injunction? I haven't seen one. I have seen him take a couple more shots at the homeless on his Twitter feed. In fact, he's notorious. The whole administration here is notorious for not responding to uh, reporters' questions or anything else. Christopher Hook in Texas Monthly uh, was writing about it, and he said, you know, I reached out to the governor for comment. We haven't heard anything. They've got a formula now in which they define certain groups as the other, as people to be despised who are responsible for their own troubles. Those folks experiencing homelessness in Austin are now, you know, uh, a punching bag. If they would just disappear and be invisible, we'd all be happy again. And when the mayor says, well, if, if uh, the governor, is, governor knows how to solve this problem, why doesn't he do it? The governor's response was, well, just cut your budget and spend it all on homelessness. I mean, literally, that's what he said today. But I don't think he's made a statement in response to the judge's ruling. Well, I don't think that's the last we're going to hear about this uh, or his ongoing attacks on homelessness or his ongoing attacks on people experiencing homelessness in Austin or our mayor and city council and and all of us uh, all the libs in austin so <laughs> michael thanks for coming in to explain a complex situation to us and forward to hearing what you have to say about it next thanks for having me uh it's a subject you don't really like to write about but you have to absolutely we are going to take a quick break for some station announcements stay with us Welcome back to the Austin Chronicle Show. We're in the studios of Co-op Community Radio, 91.7 FM in Austin, and live streaming through koop.org. I'm your host, Kim Jones, editor of the Austin Chronicle. We've just been listening to Fun, Fun, Fun by pioneering Austin punk band, The Big Boys. That song was selected by my next guest, Tim Stiegel, who has been chronicling the history of punk in Austin chapter by chapter for us in the pages of the Chronicle. Tim, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kim. Uh, so let's start let's start at the very beginning let's start with the song fun 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 why did you choose that to uh, open our segment today well this is eventually going to become a book this series that we're doing 
And the title of the book is the actual first lyric of the song, You Never Understand What We're Trying to Say. Fun, Fun, Fun became the Austin Punk Rock National Anthem. Seriously, it still is to this day. It really was an amazing statement of purpose. And that band was... I get a little choked up talking about them. Um, they They were so important. They provided a big example. They really embodied the whole DIY spirit, the whole rebellious spirit of punk, even to the point where they were not playing music most of the time that would be considered your standard punk rock format, despite what we just heard in this song. I mean, most of the time, their stuff was influenced heavily by funk, you know, and they, they printed their, they would like carry t-shirt screens with them on the road and print their t-shirts, you know, right there at the show and things like that. And they, mm-hmm. you know, they yelled at the audience every night, now go start your own band. I was one of those kids that heard that cry. Absolutely, I was. Oh, wow. So that's uh, I wanted to ask you about this: is that you cover punk and and other forms of music for the Chronicle as a journalist, but you're in the scene. You're a musician too. Yeah. From the moment I saw Patti Smith when I was 12 years old, and then the following year seeing the Clash when they played the Armadillo, and I just was blown away and I realized I would never listen to Ted Nugent or disco again (laughs) and that this was the rock and roll that spoke directly to me spoke directly of my experiences I dedicated my life to this there was nobody playing the music I wanted to hear where I grew up and in Alice Texas and Corpus Christi where I was one of the the people that helped start a punk scene down there. So I started The Hormones. There was nobody writing about this music down there. So I started a a fanzine called Noise, 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 which directly led me to becoming a journalist, essentially. You know, everything I've always done is because there's been a, a gap in things, and that's exactly why we're doing this book. Austin has a very unique story in the entire story of punk rock, and nobody has told that story yet. And, you know, a couple of years ago, the person who probably should have been writing this story, Margaret Moser, passed mm-hmm. away. And I, the book is going to be dedicated to her. I really should have been talking to her. I should have been able to talk to Biscuit from the big boys. A bunch of these people are dying. Their stories need to be told. And we were so different from the rest of the world. I mean... In 1975, basically in New York and London and and most major metropolises, people who were like the local freaks that bought New York Dolls and Stooges records started forming bands unaware that anybody else is doing this. That wasn't exactly happening here in Austin, even though those sort of people were here. Because you're pinpointing, what is it, 1978 is sort of when punk officially broke or unofficially in, in Austin? Absolutely it is. Okay. The first actual Austin punk record happened in 1975, and it was Rocky Erickson's Two-Headed Dog, holdover from the 60s scene, mm-hmm. who just somehow or other saw that something was happening. And he got there first with a little help from yet another 60s refugee, Doug Somm. Mm-hmm. You know, I pinpointed that in the in the first chapter. Right. And we should let listeners know that you've started, you've just 
in this week's issue published your third installment. The first one started back in August, uh, and it was. It was about Rocky Erickson and Doug Som and this amazing collaboration and all of these crazy influences coming together and like how punk is sort of happening alongside the cosmic cowboy scene. It's, I mean, it's crazy stuff. Yes, exactly. And then, you know, this week we're talking about something that has been completely left out of every official Texas music history, not just every official Austin music history. We're talking about the actual glam rock scene happening, and glam folded right into punk. I mean, the two major influences on punk were the New York Dolls and Iggy and the Stooges, two prime glam bands. And uh, if you listen to the common history books, you'd think that all we had here you know, was Waylon and Willie and the boys down at the Armadillo, and then, you know, a few years later, suddenly punk comes along. But, you know, there was there were these bands like Cracker Jack, which spun off practically every A-list blues guitar player, like Jesse Taylor, who later ended up playing with Joe Ely, and uh, young, a young kid named Stevie Ray Vaughan was playing with them for a while. I don't know whatever happened to him, yeah. but, you know... <laughs> There were these bands doing this music here, and it's just been completely left out of history because most of these bands did not record, unfortunately. Mm. The major record labels were not taking a look at what was happening here. You have these people that are kind of stumbling along. In 1977, you know, you have the Ramones coming through town, but for some reason it doesn't wake people up. But you had two bands forming almost simultaneously. They both share a bass player, Jesse Sublett. You have the Violators on one hand, and you have the Skunks. They eventually, by the end of the year, talk a Mexican bar on the drag called Raul's into letting them book a show in January 1978. Meantime, two weeks later, the Sex Pistols come through San Antonio. Every single person that ends up involved in this scene is at Randy's Rodeo. (laughs) That night, there are literally bands forming in cars coming back to Austin. You're going to see all this happening in the third chapter. It's going to be very intriguing. Just Louis Black was there, our former former founder. Margaret was there with her, uh, I think they were married by this point, Ken Hoagie, a local photographer. Ken told me that they were standing on Sid Vicious's side of the stage and Sid's bass missed them by inches as it came down on the heckler. <laughs> I found the, the heckler, by the way. I'm going to try to talk to him. Yes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious. You started this this whole endeavor, the first installment with, it was the, the 13th floor elevator reunion at Levitation Fest. We lost Rocky Erickson in the last year. What about that particular moment in time? Why did you want to start there? Well, because, uh, you know, Rocky did the first Austin Punk single, Two-Headed Dog. and you Was can't... it called that at the time? Yeah. Were we, people were calling it punk then? Well, they were starting to at this uh-huh. point. Nobody really called it that, but that's definitely the music. That's definitely the attitude being conveyed. Mm. The 13th floor elevators in this timeline are kind of like the Velvet Underground locally or something like that. I mean, it was... They were a pioneering psychedelic band, but their attitude was total punk. It was very, very middle finger mm-hmm. in what they did. And, you know, they had outlaw, you know, cachet 
in reams. I mean, they were getting harassed by the authorities. They eventually had to leave the state because of pot busts and things like that going on. And Rocky was committed to, uh, we used to call them mental institutions. It was the Rusk State Hospital. And that had a, a huge impact on his songwriting. It sure did. It sure did. I mean, he took the imagery from EC horror comics of the 50s, the real bloody pre-code comics, just B-grade horror films, and he was using that to express the horrors that were going on in his head. That very much, that sort of psychodrama very much folds into punk as well. Mm -hmm. There's very much this, I cannot take this world thing going on, and you know, so it was a raw scream but yeah, I tried to talk to Rocky before, as we were doing this book. It came to light that there was a reason why I didn't get to talk to him. Well, he was sick. Sure. He was sick, and we, and we lost him. And but the, you know the, the the great thing about that was, I got contacted after that chapter was published by both. Doug Somm's sons, Shandon and Sean, who talked to me for the book, as well as Jager Erickson, all three of them told me, you taught me things about my father I did not know. Hmm. Now, that's the greatest thing I could hope for. No, absolutely. That's been the the big joy, is uncovering these amazing stories that nobody knows. Like the whole thing in the first chapter about Doug Som encountering the New York Dolls. <laughs> that was so hilarious. And just then, like, the second chapter ended up accidentally becoming about, you know, Austin Glamrock. Because I came across the fact that this thing existed. And that's the legitimate next step in between here. Uncovering these stories and, you know, getting to be the one to tell them, that's like the big motivation for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I, I think our hope too is as you're as we're putting these stories out, well, you're getting the feedback and then you're starting to get more stories back feeding the project. So we've just printed the third installment. The fourth installment is next week. Can you, can you sort of tee it up for us? What do we have to look forward to? We have to look forward to Franklin's Mast, which was a mixed race band, actually. They had a... African-American singing drummer, a guy named Bevis Griffin, who's been involved in the music business here and internationally for many, many years, as well as an Asian uh, guitarist named Jimmy Lee Suraj. You're going to be getting uh, Jelly Roll, which was the band that uh, Jesse Sublet and Eddie Munoz of the Skunks were in just immediately prior to forming the Skunks. We're going to be taking a look at how these people lived their lives. They were crackerjack, were living like rajas, getting paid $1,000 a night at a time when you could get a chicken fried steak dinner for a dollar, as Tommy Shannon told me, around Austin. Mm-hmm. And then you're seeing the scene starting to fade a bit. Meantime, certain people that were involved in the previous thing, Kathy Valentine, Carla Olson, Jesse, Eddie, all these people are seeing that something needs to happen next. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think even if you don't know much about punk or punk in Austin, uh, this series is also providing just a really wonderful, unique snapshot of Austin and a completely bygone Austin. So we will keep watching with interest. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about this. Thank you. I appreciate you having me here. Well, we're about out of time today, but just a few housekeeping reminders. You can still vote in the Austin Chronicle music poll. And also the last day to register to vote in the March primary is February 3rd. Just a reminder, you cannot register online. You have to either snail mail your application in or drop it off in person. So if you pick up this week's Austin Chronicle, you can find on page 13 a voter registration application. It's totally legal. It works. You can send it in. We have been reassured by the people in power. Not sure if you're currently registered or when early voting starts or what's on the ballot. You can find all of those answers at austinchronicle.com elections. Thanks again to my guests, Michael King and Tim Siegel. Thanks also go to our engineer, Bob Daly, and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next week.